The Good Neighbor Network, FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and online at WGNSRadio.com. This is the WGNS Action Line, talking with Rutherford County newsmakers about what matters most to you. Now, your host, Scott Walker. Well, a good morning to you. Time right now is 8.17 on this Friday, today, the 28th of July. And for the first portion of this morning's program, we'll be talking with the new executive director of the Center of Migration Studies, and that is C. Mario Russell. Mario, how are you this morning? I'm well, thank you, Scott. Good morning to you. Well, good. And I guess first, starting off, Tell us what the Center for Migration Studies is. Sure. So, um, Scott, the, the Center for Migration Studies is based in New York. Uh, it's a think tank and an educational institute. We are devoted to the study of international migration um, and fundamentally really to promote understanding between immigrants and receiving communities. And... Um, as a practical matter then to advance public policies that are founded on Christian values to safeguard the dignity and the rights of migrants, of refugees, and of newcomers. So what we do is we research, analyze, write, publish, and recommend um, policies, ideas, solutions. We convene people, policymakers, lawmakers, advocates, stakeholders, uh, conferences and convenings to discuss, share, and, and again, advance solutions, um, again, both at the international and at the national level. And again with us this morning, Mario Russell. Now, I know you were recently named the new executive director for the organization, but kind of walk us back and tell us what led you to, to this position. Sure. So, uh, you know, Scott, I, I'm a I've been at this for about 25 years in the migration field, and um, frankly, it all started uh, it all started back for me in 1987 when I'd graduated from college, and I spent a year working with immigrants, um, and um, you know, kind of helping move their cases forward through through what was then right the uh, the, the uh, sort of comprehensive reform around some of the legalization programming that there was at the time under the Reagan administration. And uh, that was really transformative for me. It kind of showed me the power of policy and the power of law and good sense, right? Good, good, sensible solutions to to important American questions, which is really about, you know, who makes up our country and why and what do we need and what's the just thing to do. Um, so I worked in that as a young man and, and then eventually went to law school. Uh, from law school, I did some work with, you know, various judges and private firms, but it, it just wasn't working for me kind of almost at a spiritual level. Um, I really felt the need to be in touch with with the issues of the day, and most importantly, Scott, really with people, um, feeling connected to people and how, as a lawyer, I could um, really engage with a human being. And, and, and so then I... Around the late 90s, I began to work with an organization called Catholic Legal Immigration Network, and really at that point kind of launched into my, into my career as a lawyer, going into the courts, into the detention centers, down at the border, um, and 
you know, eventually ended up teaching at St. John's Law School, uh, organizing their clinical program for students who wanted to learn how to do things in court, um, and really spent the next, you know, 25 years or so doing that um, through St. John's Law School. And then, you know, for a good bit of time with Catholic Charities in New York, um, where over the last eight years, I took on the um, directorship of their Immigrant Refugee Services Program, which is fantastic. You know, I mean, we, we learned so much along the way, grew the program. You know, we had about 200 employees uh, and we kind of dealt with every phenomenon that came up whether it was Afghanistan, uh, right, refugees from there, Syrians, Ukrainians most recently, the unaccompanied children, the children and the family who had been separated. We were sort of in the middle of all these, uh, you can call them crises, you know, you can call them just important moments in American history and, and shifts in, in, in response and identity. Um, and so I felt that... I guess with 25 years working in the field, maybe I had something to add to the to the to the bigger dialogue and to the national and international dialogue. So I decided I I would sort of take a turn and and bring whatever I could share from from the field <clears throat> to these conversations, which which is where I think we really need to do a lot of work as a society. And for folks out there listening, let's say their parents, their grandparents, their great-great-grandparents have lived here in America for their entire life. That tells me, you know, they probably don't know a lot about immigration. So, in other words, they get their information about immigration from sound bites because we live in a soundbite world. So, I, I guess, bring us up to date on some of the realities that those who are immigrants in America. Tell us what they face. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a difficult time, but, you know, at the same time, Scott, I would say it's always been a difficult time or it's always been the same thing, right? So, so one of the problems, and I think you hit it on, on the head in a way, um, is, is sort of the soundbite issue. We've always been receiving soundbites, and I would say this since, since the late 1800s. Right. There have always been sound bites about immigrants. Maybe at some point there were Italians and then Irish and then Poles and Germans. So, so there's always been a perceived concern about the stranger coming at the border. And um, so, yes, right, we do have the need of people who present themselves, again, Ukraine, Central America, uh, South America, Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti, you know, who, who come to our shores looking for help and looking for protection sometimes and sometimes a safe place or just a home to start or restart their lives. The reality, though, I would say, is, frankly, there really isn't at this point, and I say this in my very measured opinion, there isn't any greater, frankly, or lesser problem or phenomenon at the border or or entering the U.S. than there has been in the past. Yes, it's true that what we call apprehension at the border have increased, and frankly, they have increased over the last 10 years. But those who are getting in, in terms of numbers, really have not changed substantially. We have chosen to make available to some, mostly those from Venezuela and Ukraine most recently, 
access to our immigration system for them to present a case for protection. I think we can still do a better job around that, by the way. But that's what we've decided to do because of the crises that are happening in those countries. But that's entirely consistent with our system of laws that gives people an opportunity to present their case for asylum or protection, as I said, under the, under the domestic laws, and to have their case heard in court. But, you know, I understand and I'm fully aware that there's always been a problem and a challenge with people, you know, perceived in a sense this year as against the one before or the one before that as entering the border unlawfully, whether it's across the desert or across the river. But the actual numbers themselves don't bear that out. So I think much of this is a presentation of sound bites and optics that are convenient because it's a way of making us anxious, concerned, fearful. You know, we use language of invasion and overcrowding, but those things aren't really true and accurate and consistent. In fact, in fact, Scott, the undocumented population in America has decreased over the last 10 years. Hmm. So that's the ultimate measure, right? That is the ultimate measure. Uh, in fact, the population of Mexicans undocumented over the last 10 years has decreased significantly. These are things we're studying now, and we'll be issuing a report actually in the next three months so we can reconnect when we're done with that. But those are really important facts, and facts matter, not perceptions and fears. And again with us this morning, Mario Russell, the executive director of the Center for Migration Studies. And I'm curious, you're saying the, the numbers of those coming into the U.S. has gone down, but what has triggered that? So I'm saying slightly two different things. One is I'm saying the number of the undocumented in America has gone down. Um, the number of people who are seeking admission admittedly has gone up, right? So when the news tells you that, you know, uh, whether it was under the Trump administration or the Biden administration, there was an increased number of people presenting themselves at the border or being apprehended at the border, that's true. But they're being turned back. So that's one thing, right? So visualize you have sort of northern Mexico in the border and what happens at the border and that the authorities are essentially encountering people and for the most part turning them back, except when they make a choice to allow someone in to seek protection. Then the second piece, which you're just asking me about now, Scott, is, hey, why are there fewer undocumented people in the United States, you know, it's always been around 12, 12 and a half million, and I think our count now is showing that sort of closer to 10, 10 and a half. It's because some people are going back. That's the bottom line. Some people are going back because sometimes in some places the conditions in their countries are improving, and I would point to Mexico for the most part. That um, our, our supposition is that probably people who are reaching retirement age as undocumented in America are saying, oh, I'm going to go I'm going to go rebuild my life there. Um, it's probably cheaper. Maybe the conditions aren't as dangerous as they used to be. Um, and the opportunities I need aren't, you know, aren't, are available there and less so in America. Um, I think to some extent to editorialize on that point, if I can, I think that's a little bit of a tragedy because <clears throat> these are people who've probably been here for 20, 30 years and have helped, have built you know, our country, you know, they've mowed our lawns, they've served our coffee, they've delivered our packages, they've 
nurses in the hospitals. They've cleaned our homes and often even taken care of our children. But we didn't, for some reason, figure out how to give them status, you know, to make them from citizens with a small case, lowercase c, to citizens with an uppercase c. So they, they go back. No, I, I know we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I'm, I'm curious, are there outdated policies in place? Because as you talk about how that number, you know, the, the numbers have changed, obviously. But sure. as you talk about that, I'm wondering, are there outdated policies in place that you think need to be changed? Two things. We need to change our labor policies, and by that I mean immigration labor policies, and we need to change our protection policies. We need to recognize the labor needs of America and the labor supply that's available to us. We have systems for immigration that are that were about 30 years 30 years old about 40 years ago. You know, so we're using old tools to deal with modern problems. Um, not everybody who comes to the U.S. is trying to stay forever. We should be able to figure out how to address circular labor temporary needs, and we can do that. And I think we can fix our protection system so that we we deal with questions that are not just those that are from the old days about persecution, but deal with climate change and other issues and are offering temporary modes of protection to people. Not everything has to be a permanent solution. We can find modern solutions that both address labor and protection. Family reunification can be rebuilt and done a little bit more efficiently. Um, But again, these are three pieces that can be looked at and they're on the table, but the politics got boy, oh boy, there's no conversation happening in Washington around this for a long, long time, and that's where we need the help. And I'm, I'm curious, when you look at different issues surrounding those who come into the U.S. and maybe, you know, they move their family here over the last 10 years or so, you hear of stories of racism and hatred and anger even over some immigrants, but how much of a reality is that for those who are immigrants here? Well, I would say that certainly it's a reality for many, um, and certainly by, you know, an absolute certainly for some. I think these things happen. Um, you know, whether you're, whether you're brown or black, um, the, the issue of racism is real. I tend to think, Scott, that at the end of the day, it's a more about class and standing in society. Um, but I think it's get masked it gets masked a little bit as, as race and racism. Um, but I think really our, our fundamental problem is one about caste and economic, you know, standing. But certainly, absolutely, you know, we, we are aware of that, we're aware of that, and we hear about it as you do as well. Um, and I think it's a matter of education. And, and I would say at the end of the day, and I sort of return to my own days where I began this work and the reason why I did it, it's a matter of encounter. Who do you know? Have you talked to these people? Have you gotten to know them? You know, they laugh, they cry, they have children, they have stress, they have anxiety. They're really like us, really, really like us, but we just got to get to know them, whether it's at a community event and church at a fair next door, but that's really what makes the difference because ultimately those differences get broken down. And again, with us this morning, the Executive Director of the Center for Migration Studies. And uh, Mario, where can people learn more? Well, they can go to our website, uh, (laughs) which is cmsny.org. We have a ton of information, and it's easily digestible, Scott. We have a ton of um, 
you know, policy uh, briefings. Um, you can also join our um, distribution list. We send a weekly migration update to uh, anyone who wants to join it. can make a donation, too, by the way, while you're at it. But um, you can find all of that on our website. And you can call me anytime if you want someone uh, to come speak from my office and, and do a little education around these issues. Sounds good. Uh, thank you for joining us today. You bet. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Again, with us this morning, Mario Russell. He is the executive director of the Center for Migration Studies. When we come back, we've got another guest who's going to be on the air. And that guest is from a place called the Renfro Center. We'll tell you more about that and how they work to help others who are struggling with a variety of mental illnesses, but also eating disorders. So we'll touch base on that in just a second when we come back. The Garden Patch Thrift Shop on Spring Street in downtown Murfreesboro. We are very blessed to have volunteers, to have friends that are decorators that come in and merchandise our store and do our window displays that help with linens, that help with jewelry, that help just make the store look really nice. Proceeds from sales benefit Greenhouse Ministries, a faith-based nonprofit serving the underserved here in Murfreesboro. The Garden Patch Thrift Shop on Spring Street, across from the tall NHC building. If you have ever dreamed of relaxing by your very own koi pond, we can make that happen at Animal City. We carry a variety of products and livestock to make your dream come true. Hi, this is Amanda from Animal City. Be sure to check out our downstairs level, complete with indoor pond and tons of furry cute critters. Animal City, your family-owned and operated pet store for 33 years. You can find us at Animal City at 919 Northwest Broad. CBS News Brief. Former President Trump will meet up with other Republican presidential candidates, including Ron DeSantis, in Iowa tonight, despite new federal charges in the classified documents case. Legal contributor Rebecca Royfe. In this case, because the former president speaks so publicly about it, we know what his defenses are going to be. And yes, they have been shifting. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says he's not going anywhere. A spokesperson says he plans to remain in his leadership post through the current Congress. The 81-year-old was whisked away from a news conference two days ago when he froze up and couldn't speak. About half the people in this country under heat warnings and advisories today, including Jessica Torreson, who works outdoors for a tree care company in White Bear Lake, Minnesota. We try to just keep an eye on each other. We'll look at my colleague and say, hey, you're moving pretty slow. Why don't you go sit in the AC for 10 minutes? It'll feel more like 100 degrees in New York City. CBS News Brief. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. Hi, this is Peter Demas. One of the things that we've done years ago is we've been able to do our orders like our pastas and many other items that we used to be able to put them in large pans and now we have a catering team that will even deliver it to your home. We can drop it off for you, set it up, or they can come in and pick it up. Look up our catering menu on www.demasrestaurants.com. This is Peter Demas at Demas's Restaurant. 1115 Northwest Broad Street in Murfreesboro. A heat advisory will go into effect here this afternoon. Sunny skies this afternoon, high in the upper 90s. Then for tonight, mostly clear, low near 74. I'm meteorologist Jennifer Wojcicki on News Radio WGNS. Currently, it's 74. Do you have heart failure and often hear? 
Those stomach issues ruined your birthday. You're too tired to play catch, Grandpa. Sweetie, you haven't touched your tools since the carpal tunnel syndrome diagnosis. If these seemingly unrelated symptoms sound familiar, talk to your cardiologist and ask about transthyretin amyloid cardiomyopathy, or ATTRCM, a rare and underdiagnosed disease that gets worse over time. Learn more at connecttoyourheart.com. That's connecttoyourheart.com. Sponsored by Pfizer. Attorney Joe Cordell. Business owners and professionals face special challenges in divorce court. In addition to everything else going on, they have to contend with allegations that they are earning more than they are, coupled with claims on their business or practice itself. Clients with assets depend on their divorce lawyer skills in these matters, and that's why it's so important to hire someone that has those skills. Schedule an appointment with one of Cordell & Cordell's Nashville area attorneys. 810 Crescent Center Drive, Suite 160, Franklin, Tennessee, 37067. We're talking with Pat Wingo at Adams Place. Adams Place makes fun, and there's as much to do as you want to do. When I leave my room about 10 a.m., I don't get back sometimes till midnight. <laughs> I'm a night owl. Well, I like to have fun with my friends. Yes, I do. Where is the fun? Oh, hands down, I'd say Adams Place. Hi, this is Terry Deal at Adams Place. Call me for more information about Adams Place. 1927 Memorial Boulevard, across from Walmart. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. And now joining us, Emily McGuire, and uh, she is from the Renfrew Center. Emily, good morning to you. Good morning, Scott. Thanks for having me. So I guess first off, tell us what is the Renfrew Center? So we are an eating disorder treatment center here in Nashville. Um, and provide a variety of different treatment programs for those experiencing eating disorders. And how big of a problem are eating disorders in Tennessee? Across America, um, about 30 million Americans are diagnosed with eating disorders, um, and it's actually second to opioid deaths only in um, mental illnesses. So, um, you know, in Tennessee, we do see a lot of eating disorders um, across the state. Wow, I, I had no idea the numbers were that high. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when you look at things like eating disorders or even alcoholism, drug addiction, when you look at all those types of problems, do you typically see that there is an underlying reason such as childhood trauma, adult trauma? Is, is there something that usually leads to this stuff? Yeah, that's a great question um, that we really get frequently because the answer is, you know, there's really no one reason that eating disorders um, exist or that someone develops them, but there are a lot of different contributing factors um, that go into that. So what you've mentioned, childhood trauma definitely can be a contributing factor. Um, Other things would be genetics. There is Um, You know, it's shown that genetics do increase the development of eating disorders. Um, With anorexia, it's about 12 times more likely to develop an eating disorder um, if someone in your family had one. Um, Other, go ahead. I I was going to say, you know, I'm also curious how big of a role things like social media play in all this, but but go ahead and, and tell us more about it all. Yeah, so other contributing factors, um, like psychologically, would just be kind of feeling overwhelmed, out of control, um, a need for approval, um, restrained family family relationships. Um, and then social media, definitely, obviously, have seen an increase in social media use and its impact on these things. Um, and while 
it definitely perpetuates eating disorders. Um, typically, it's not, you know, the sole reason for the, de- the development, but really just continues to increase comparison um, across clients who maybe already struggle with eating disorders um, and already have that predisposition to develop one. And again, Emily McGuire with us this morning from the Renfro Center. When you look at things like eating disorders, do you often see other problems that go along with it, such as depression and anxiety? Yeah, so typically um, almost all cases we see are what we call co-occurring. So they exist um, in tandem with depression or anxiety um, at the Renfrew Center, we actually treat eating disorders as emotional disorders um, because eating disorders are often used as a tool to manage or control negative or intolerable emotions like depression or anxiety. So do some patients have to be treated with, you know, not only counseling, uh, but also uh, a medication treatment that goes along with it? Yeah, so part of our program is we actually have a psychiatric nurse practitioner here on site um, who completes assessments with clients um, and prescribes some medication if that's something they're interested in. Uh, most of the research shows for just mental health disorders in general that both talk therapy um, and medication, the combination of that is really the most sustainable treatment. And what age group are you typically seeing come in who is needing help? Yeah, so we see um, all ages here from 12 and up. Um, The typical ages that we see um, are kind of in that 18 to 24 range um, when a lot of those mental health disorders are being expressed. Um, That's typically kind of the first time that we see those mental health disorders. Typically, anorexia actually has kind of a twofold onset, so either around 12 to 13 years old or around 17 years old. And then when examining all the other mental disorders that, you know, people could have or be diagnosed with, what are some of the the key ones that you're seeing over and over again? Yeah, so um, the main ones we see with um, eating disorders are typically depression and anxiety. Um, We also see OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, There are other anxiety disorders like PTSD um, and panic disorders. And we also see some bipolar disorder as well. Is bipolar, is that pretty prevalent here in the South? Yeah, yeah, we do see um, a lot of bipolar disorder, and especially with eating disorders, it can um, manifest in a lot of different ways, but sometimes um, it can come out of that like impulsivity that arises from bipolar disorder when um, they're experiencing that manic state. A lot of times people can turn to food in those times of impulsivity, whether that is um, eating, eating a large quantity of food or engaging in purging behavior, something that is more kind of impulsive and they don't really think much about. You know, with bipolar disorder, folks hear that and it scares them away from the person who has it because you, you don't learn a lot about it. And see, it seems like it's easy to learn about the negative side of things, and I'm sure there's lots of negatives with it, but you don't hear about the positive treatment that can be done. And I'm curious, what types of success stories have you seen with folks who are bipolar? Yeah, yeah. So what's really, I think, unfortunate, specifically with bipolar, too, is just kind of the stigma around bipolar and that be being used in um, casual conversation when really referring to mood swings. Um, so it's really important to note that the cycles 
of bipolar. So between that manic state and depression, they're not as instantaneous as mood swings. Um, so that can be inappropriate, inappropriately used a lot. Um, so really how when we see bipolar, um, we're kind of, you know, treating their eating disorder and um, their bipolar disorder. So really looking at, you know, how maybe do they feel out of control and how are maybe they using their food to increase that level of control and how do we get that need met in a different way um, instead of using food for that. So somebody having, you know, just mood swings, which could be caused by any number of factors versus somebody having a real problem with a bipolar disorder. What what did the differences look like for the average person? If you know you're looking at somebody saying, you know, I wonder if I need to take them to the doctor to further examine this because something's not right, or if they need to step back and say, well, I understand they've been under a lot of stress, or you know, they're they're going through hormone changes. Maybe they just had a child. How do you differentiate? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So typically, bipolar disorder lasts for at least a week. So the symptoms lasting for at least a week and up to two weeks. So those symptoms would look like, I know I've said the word mania and depression a couple of times, but to describe that a little more, mania is um, a distinct period of elevated or irritable mood um, and abnormally increased goal-directed activity or energy. So what that looks like, it could be inflated self-esteem or maybe these um, displays of grandiosity. Um, A decreased need for sleep is something that we see. So it's pretty significant, meaning maybe two to four hours of sleep a night that lasts for a week or more, and you don't feel sluggish throughout the day. Um, And then also would be an increased involvement in activities like spending sprees, maybe even business investments or substance use that can all be very risky um, when you're in that more manic state. Wow. Um, so it, it, it could be all over the map one week and then next week uh, extreme lows. Yes. Yeah. So those depre- depressive episodes are um, look like feeling really sad, empty, and hopeless, um, also coupled with a really diminished interest in pleasure or activities that typically someone really enjoys, and then just an overall feeling of worth- worthlessness. So are there medications that treat it properly? I, I mean, have we come far enough along to where, you know, medicine really does make a difference? Yeah, so that's something that our psychiatrist um, would really assess to see if it's appropriate because each individual is going to be different. Um, You know, there are things that could benefit them, but that would really be the psychiatrist doing a full assessment with them and seeing if that would be appropriate for them. And and then going back to that whole thing of when a family member should become concerned or, you know, decide there needs to be outside help with this and they don't know what to do. How, How do you go about making that decision? Yeah, absolutely. So there are some, you know, warning signs that we always kind of make people aware of uh, with eating disorders. So those could include, you know, watching a loved one um, obsess over food or calories, obsess over their body size, shape, be really preoccupied with exercise, disappearing after meals to use the bathroom, hiding or hoarding food. So those are just some of the common warning signs. If those are being, you know, consistently observed by a family member or support person, um, that's when we would encourage the family member to talk to that person and encourage them to seek professional help. 
And these are all problems that are very prevalent in today's society. I, I know you were saying at the beginning how prevalent eating disorders are. Go back to that again. Tell us again the percentage uh, or, or, you know, how prevalent eating disorders really are. Yeah, yeah. So it's about 30 million Americans are diagnosed with eating disorders um, in the U.S. And um, it is among the deadliest mental illnesses and really second to opioid overdose. So what are some of the contributing factors that make it so dangerous to where it could lead to death? Yeah, so there's a lot of medical complications that go along with eating disorders, um, and that would include immunodeficiency, right? When our body is not having enough energy from food, it's hard to keep our immune system going. Um, In most severe cases, when you're low weight, it can lead to organ failure if your body doesn't have enough energy to keep your organs going, Um, cardiac arrest, um, kidney failure, and then more on the mental health side, also suicide. Wow. And and with the mental health side of things, you were saying that typically, it sounded like in almost all cases, you are seeing some mental health issues in addition to that eating disorder and depression and anxiety were, were two of the main things. And I guess, realistically, depression and anxiety, those go along with a lot of other problems, don't they? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So both depression and anxiety can really not only impact um, just your state of being um, and feeling a lot of times uncomfortable in your own body can really impact um, your social situations, right? So your relationship with friends and family, um, your work, right? If you are very depressed and feeling fatigued and have difficulty concentrating, that's obviously going to impact your work. Um, so it can be really harmful to other areas of your life as well. Well, I, I know you said that a lot of folks who do come in to get help, they're in that age bracket of roughly 18 years old to 25 years old. But if you were to to break it down even more and say, all right, well, the majority of those who have this issue have this background, such as maybe they're, they're I don't know, race dependent or maybe it's uh, you know their background their family has a lot of money or maybe they come from poverty is there anything there that you are seeing on a regular basis that you can say you know the majority of people that I've seen over the last two months have come from this background yeah yeah so um, and this is just kind of generalized to um, the U.S. in general, but overall, people of color are significantly less likely to receive help for their eating disorder, Um, and a lot of times, unfortunately, that's coming from providers. There actually was um, a case study where um, white, Hispanic, and African-American clinicians were asked to identify women's eating patterns as problematic, and 44% of the clinicians identified white women's behavior as problematic. 41% 41% identified Hispanic women's behavior as problematic, and only 17% identified the black woman's behavior as problematic. Um, so that's a really big issue we're seeing just across the board and why you know, Mental Health Minority Month is so important to, important to raise that awareness. Hey, and then are you seeing an equal number of, of males come in, or is it more females Yeah, so um, it really is largely female. Um, 
about 10 to 25% of those with eating disorders are males. Um, and typically males are less likely to seek treatment as well, just due to um, stigma. There, you know, is a lot of um, stigma around weight and um, weightlifting in the male community, and that can kind of mask eating disorders as well. So um, a fewer percentage of males will seek treatment. Do some of those who do have eating disorders, do they not actually recognize that there is a problem with them? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, for male and female across the board. Um, And some of that is due to just the way our society kind of glorifies thinness and diet culture um, and just across the board, especially with that social media piece as well. Um, There also just is a piece of anorexia that typically people um, don't recognize the severity of what's going on, whether that's due to, you know, the malnourishment and the brain not firing properly um, or just kind of an initial denial of the severity of symptoms. And Emily, I'm I'm curious, what is that wake-up call for, for people who may not have come to grips with, you know, they've got a problem? Yeah, yeah. So for some people, um, if they reach out and do seek help, the initial assessment, um, you know, with somewhere like the Renfrew Center um, can be a wake-up call for people. We talk about, you know, medical history, eating patterns, any depression, anxiety symptoms, and sometimes the process of just talking through all that um, can be really jarring to someone and they can realize how significant of a problem it is. Again, Emily McGuire with us this morning with the Renfro Center, and uh, you guys focus on eating disorders. How important is it to talk about the problems that, you know, somebody may have? How important is it to, for them to actually voice what's going on? Yeah, it's so important, um, especially because we really, really focus on family and supports here. We think that's a really big component of treatment. Um, obviously, your treatment team, which would be therapists and dietitian and psychiatrists, they are supports here clinically, but we really focus on outside of here. What does your support look like and how can we increase it? And the first step of that is talking about it. Um, so that can be a really hard step for some people is really just opening up about this, but it's really important. And for a parent listening this morning who may suspect that maybe their child has an eating disorder, how would you suggest they go about talking about it? Because weight is a touchy topic, really, for, for most teenagers out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is a question we get a lot because ultimately, you know, when a parent's faced with this, it's really challenging because there's no guidebook um, when it comes to eating disorders that parents would be aware of. Um, and so when that does happen, you know, those warning signs that I did mention, like hiding food, obsessing over food and calories, maybe disappearing after meals to use the bathroom, things like that. If a parent's noticing those consistently, um, you know, we want to be very sensitive um, when approaching this subject with a child um, or a loved one, but our main um, recommendation would be to listen really thoughtfully to your loved one, maybe mention what you've been noticing, um, ask what their opinion is, and try not to give advice and reach, have them reach out to professionals. Have you found that it is hard for some parents to address it without, maybe without a side of anger whenever they're asking questions? Because I know for some people, it's hard to control that when you have all those emotions going on. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's a really emotional time for parents, understandably, right? Because a lot of those other emotions are coming out of fear and care for their child, which is so understandable. Um, So we just recommend really taking that conversation slowly, um, trying to take deep breaths. And remember, there's always people you can reach out to. You don't have to do that alone. So would it be a good idea for a mom or a dad to address it maybe with a counselor? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, We have parents reach out, too, before maybe they've even confronted their child to talk about, you know, what does this look like? Um, What can I do? And we kind of talk through, you know, communication styles with them and where they go to in times of stress. When they're feeling stress, how does their communication style shift and what does that look like? And how can we have um, a productive and appropriate conversation? How important is it for a parent to be ready, be prepared to hear that maybe their child thinks that something they did in the past is to blame for their eating disorder? Yeah, so that's something, um, you know, we obviously talk about a lot and want to recognize that you know, parents are never the sole reason why an eating disorder exists, right? Obviously, different people are going to really take to heart different comments and things that happen over time um, and recognizing that that could contribute um, and having an open and honest conversation. Again, trying to manage those emotions within the conversation um, and not, you know, acting out of those emotions. And if somebody out there listening wants to get some help, how do they go about contacting the Renfrew Center? To reach us, um, you can call 1-800-RENFREW, and that will take you to kind of our main um, call center. You can call uh, or um, reach us online at therenfrewcenter.com. Again, Emily McGuire with us today with the Renfrew Center. Uh, We appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate being here. Time right now is 8.58, and we'll post the podcast of this in just a little while to our website, wgnsradio.com, and there we'll also post that phone number and the website as well. Again, time right now, 8.58. You're listening to WGNS once more on this Friday morning. Stay with us. We do have more news and information coming up. If you're looking for an authentic relationship with financial experts who genuinely care about your unique needs, Capstar Bank is for you. Capstar Bank is dedicated to the people of this community. Capstar Bank wants to help you reach your financial goals. Because at Capstar Bank, you matter to us. Capstar Bank, 2230 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, capstarbank.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender. We got some good neighbors and we like bragging on them. Nominate a good neighbor every day. Put it in writing on WGNS. WGNS. AM. AM. FM. FM. Online.